Welcome to Global Dispatches, a podcast about world affairs and the people who shape it. I'm your host, Mark Leon Goldberg, editor of UN Dispatch, and in this show we discuss topical global issues and have in-depth conversations with personalities in foreign policy. Global Dispatches is presented in partnership with Humanity in Action, an international educational organization, and I am a Humanity in Action senior fellow. My guest today, Dr. Mojda Gassamiani, is a psychologist with Doctors Without Borders. She is a Kurdish refugee to Denmark and recently delivered a TED Talk describing her refugee experience. In the talk, she draws on her knowledge as a psychologist specializing in trauma and PTSD to explain how the traumatic experiences of refugee children can have lifelong effects. Mojda is someone I have known for years. We are both Humanity in Action senior fellows and lived in D.C. at the same time some years ago. The TED Talk she delivered was at a TEDx event in Aarhus, Denmark, and in it, she explains how communities can come together to help counteract some of the negative long-term impacts associated with being a child refugee. The episode you are about to hear will come in two parts. First, you'll hear that TED Talk. Then Mojda and I have an extended conversation about some of the stories she alludes to in the talk and also the broader political environment that caused her family to flee first from Iran right after the 1979 revolution and then from Saddam Hussein's campaign of genocide against the Kurds. We also discuss her current work as a psychologist who specializes in working with refugee children and also what some of the latest research says about how best to confront PTSD and childhood trauma. The TED Talk sets up our longer conversation very nicely. If you want to watch the TED Talk, I'll post a link to it on globaldispatchespodcast.com. As always, if you have any questions or if you have suggestions of people you want me to interview or topics you want me to cover, uh, go to globaldispatchespodcast.com and click on the email me form. I am very happy to hear from you always. I do love hearing from you listeners. It helps me understand a little bit about what animates you, what interests you. So please don't hold back. Please let me know what your interests are. I look forward to hearing from you. All right. Now, here is that TED Talk from Mojda Gassamiani. Looking for a trustworthy podcast to bring you unfiltered viewpoints and experiences on global health? Tune into Global Health Matters, the podcast that connects silos and amplifies diverse voices to give you a holistic picture. Each month, Dr. Gary Aslanian from the World Health Organization hosts discussions with guests spanning former ministers of health, award-winning journalists and authors, and frontline public health workers. Join listeners from across 180 countries for an exciting Season 4, launching in June. Global Health Matters is available on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and YouTube. Imagine a little girl. She's only four years old. She's scared. She's crying. And she is in a little village high up in the mountains of Kurdistan in Iraq. She's screaming. She's shouting. But nobody's hearing her voice. She's desperately holding on to her mother's dress. Her mother's bleeding. Half of her face is missing. And the sound of gunshots, it's still echoing in the little girl's ears. These images, these sounds, the deep feeling of fear will be forever frozen in my memory. I'm sure that all of you feel a great deal of sympathy for this little girl. You might even think of your own son, daughter, nieces and nephews. But at the same time, 
you might feel a sense of helplessness. What can I do? This happened in a country far away from here. I'm here today to tell you that you have the key to help this little girl and thousands of little girls and boys just like her. I know that because I was this little girl who suffered from trauma and fear throughout her childhood. But she was lucky to get, to get through it because of the help of people like you. I also know that because I have been working tirelessly for the past 12 years as a psychologist to find out how I can relieve traumatized refugees from their trauma and from their fear and to help them to have a productive and happy life. When my mother got shot, I learned that no matter how much I shouted, how much I screamed, I didn't have a voice as a child. And I learned that the world was not safe. My story begins the same way as the story of millions of refugee children all over the world. It begins with a war. My name is Mujda. It means good news. Yes. I was given that name by my Kurdish parents because they were certain that my name came with the good news of peace and democracy for the Kurdish people. And because I was born the exact same day that the revolution ended in Iran in 1979. But they were wrong. Only six months after my birth, I ended up in prison with my mother. And after that, 13 years refugees in Iraq. As refugees, we didn't have any rights. We experienced oppression, cruelty, and death. I will spare you the details, but I can tell you that they were experiences that nobody should be exposed to, not a child or an adult. I learned the same thing that many refugee children end up learning at some point in their life, and that is my family and I were unwanted by the people around us. We were simply unwanted. I also learned that the people that I loved and the people that I cared about, they just disappeared. I remember my little brother crying and shouting and being really angry every time my dad would leave the house because he knew the exact same thing that we all knew, that every time we said goodbye to somebody, there was a huge risk that we will never see them again. I knew the same. So I would hold on to my little brother's hand firmly and I would pull him close to me hoping that I would never lose him. Like millions of refugee children, I grew up never knowing what it meant to feel safe. Fear consumed all of my being. I was afraid every second of my life. Today we know that constant fear has psychological damaging effect on children. Almost 40 to 50% of traumatized refugees end up developing post-traumatic stress disorder. For many years after my mother got shot, I could not sleep. I had nightmares all the time. I could not learn anything because I couldn't concentrate. I couldn't remember. I would faint if I saw blood. I would faint if I saw somebody angry or if I saw a soldier. My immune system was damaged by stress, so I would get infections all the time. Yet, I consider myself lucky. My family was lucky, because we were able to get out of the war zone. Thanks to the UN system of quota refugees, and thanks to Denmark for accepting us. But my struggles as refugees did not end then. 
Even after I came to Denmark, I realized that my trauma and my fear did not disappear. While I wasn't in a war zone anymore, and the bombs had stopped falling, and the bullet had stopped raining over me every day and night, I was still afraid. During the night, I would be back in the war, fighting for my life in my nightmares. In the days, smells and sounds would take me back to the war. Again and again. You probably remember my little brother that I told you about, that could not say goodbye and got really angry every time my dad left the house. He's grown up now. He lives close to me. He's actually sitting in the audience today. <laughs> But still, he's unable to say goodbye. Every time he visits me, it takes him 30 minutes to say goodbye and get out of the house. And when he gets to his car, finally, he calls me right away to tell me that he will see me again soon. And he calls me again when he's home. He calls me again right before he goes to sleep. My story is not unique, unfortunately. You probably heard of the million of refugees all over the world today. According to United Nations, there is more than 65 million refugees right now today. This is equivalent to the big country like UK or France. These numbers are overwhelming. They're difficult to relate to. I know. They are for me too. Even though it seems impossible to do anything about these millions, just affecting the life of one person for the better is of great significance. And every and each of these numbers represent a human fate, like myself, my brother, and the refugees that I work with. So the challenge is, How do we ensure that refugees, many of which are traumatized, can have a good, productive life for their own benefits, but also for the benefit of the society and the economy as a whole? In my work as a psychologist, I have found out that even though it is essential working on processing the traumatic experience, It's not enough in itself. Because the refugees I work with, every time they experience a huge amount of stress or transition, their trauma reaction will come back. So I start asking them one simple question. What is the difference between the times that you're feeling well and the times that you're not? And their answers were always the same. Fear. Especially the children would tell me that they felt afraid everywhere and every second of their lives. And the only place they wanted to be was with their families. Because that was the only place they felt safe. And the importance of safety is also backed by academic research. The theory and the research of Professor Jennifer Bullman tell us and show us that we're born with a core assumption that we're safe in the world. That gives us the ability to go out and live freely. And when that ability is shattered because of a traumatic experience, we're no longer able to trust people around us, we're no longer able to trust ourselves. So if traumatized refugees need to heal, or we help them to heal, they need to trust again. And in order to trust, they need to feel safe again. And the process of regaining safety, the feeling of safety, is not achieved only through psychological therapy. It is achieved through being with other people in communities where you feel safe. 
And that is also shown by a study done by Edith Montgomery, who followed 450 children, refugee children, arriving as asylum seekers in Denmark. The study shows that almost 90% of the children, when they arrived in Denmark, they had trauma reactions. But the children who got asylum and who were moved to a very safe community shortly after, their trauma reaction actually disappeared. They recovered. So safety and community matters. Today, I have learned that as a psychologist, if I want to help traumatized refugees heal and also have a productive life and be integrated in their societies, I need the help of the communities around them. And the question is, is that a difficult thing to do? To give that help? To give that help? And the answer is no. It's actually very simple. Every and each one of you can change life. I'll give you some illustrations. When I came to uh, Denmark, and what gave my family and I hope back, and the feeling that we were normal human beings like everybody else, was the kindness of one man. That man's name is Valdama. He was 70 years old at the time. We were living in a small village, and in all the years that we lived there, none of our neighbors ever knocked at our door to ask us how we're doing or to say hello. And one day, Valdama just showed up. He talked and talked in Danish. <laughs> we didn't understand anything of what he said. Still, we welcomed him, and we sat down, we drank tea. Valdama started watching the Kurdish news with my father. And then he decided that he would like to teach us Danish. And we started having something to look forward to every day. Valdama made us feel welcome. He made us feel normal. And most of all, he made us feel safe. When I was working in London a few years ago with torture survivors, I met this young adult, his name is Jonas. And Jonas, at the time, he didn't have asylum. He was living on the streets. He was suffering from depression, suicide thoughts, and post-traumatic stress disorder. And one day, I went for a walk with Jonas, and every time we met a friendly person who would smile to him. He would stop up and he would ask if you could take a picture with them. The same way as he took a picture with me after every session we had. So one day I asked him, why is he taking so many pictures of everybody? And the answer was very simple. He looked at me, he smiled and said, well, it's really scary at the dark, in the evenings, when I'm lying in the streets. That's the time where I have suicide thoughts and I don't want to be here anymore. I get scared. When that happened, I simply take out my phone and I look at all the friendly faces that I have seen that day. And I remind myself that the world is not that bad. Maybe it's not that scary. And I start looking forward to tomorrow. What Veldama and Jonas taught me is very simple, but at the same time, very powerful. He taught me that it's me and you who got the power to give back refugees what has been shattered within them. It's us together who can give back these people the feeling of safety. And it's very simple. Every, every kindness actually counts. You just have to treat them as you treat any other human beings. Be kind, be curious, talk to them, smile. 
When I was 16, I fled Iraq with my family in a bag of a truck. I remember looking out and thinking of thousands of refugee children I have left behind. And I remember at that moment making myself a promise that one day I will find my voice. One day I will be able to tell the stories of a refugee child. I will be the last voice of the children of the war. And today I stand in front of you, no longer frozen. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Today I stand in front of you. While my trauma is still part of me, I'm lo no longer frozen. I'm no longer overwhelmed by fear. At the same time, I know I'm standing here because I was given a chance, a chance that millions of refugee children is not given today. I was given asylum, and I was met by people who was kind and gave me back the faith in humanity. Being a refugee is not a choice, but welcoming them and being kind to them is a choice that every one of us can make every day. I remember my mother always telling us that refugees look for angels in their journey. And these angels would change our life by their simple gesture of kindness. And we make a place in our heart for these angels and remember them for always. And my wish today is for all of you that you will go out and be an angel for the next refugee that you meet. My wish today is that you actually will go out and be someone's Valdama. Thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you. All right, those applause are, are well-deserved. Now for the next 30 minutes or so, Moshe and I have a conversation uh, about her experiences as a refugee. As I said earlier, we fill in some of like the political and historical background around uh, what happened to her and her family, but also have a, a powerful and in-depth conversation uh, about her own trauma and how she deals with it and how it informs her work to this day. So here is my conversation with Mojda Gassamiani. Your your talk opens up in in a pretty tragic scene in which your mother is is shot and you are fearful four year old. Um, can you talk a little bit more about that incident? Like, do you know who the perpetrators of that violence were? You know, one thing that I have learned um, throughout my work um, is that um, it's not only in my family, but especially in refugee families, there is a lot of uh, a world of secrets, uh, I call them. There are things that you just don't talk about in in refugee families, Um Things that happen during the war, things that happen uh, within the family, things that are really traumatic and affect the whole family. And this incident that happened with uh, uh, my mother getting shot um, is something that has affected my whole family 
uh, all my nine siblings and especially, of course, my parents. Um, but we, we don't talk about what happened and how it happened. Uh, we talk about all the incidents that happened afterwards. Um, and I have tried to really remember also through therapy, what, what did really happen? Where was I? Did I see who shot my mother? Did I see, um, you know, what happened to my brother? Um, uh, and, and to be honest, I don't remember specifically what happened. I remember, um, how, you know, how she looked, her face. I remember my brother. I, I remember all the blood. Um, the terror, uh, I remember the feeling of standing there, um, and everything afterwards, but I have blocks in my memory that is just not existent. So what I know is from the stories that, that I hear and I have asked my parents and they are not very specific about what happened, um, um, so I, I, I can't even sit here and give you a specific um, uh, story about really what happened. I know my understanding is that there were, um, you know, soldiers who came into the house and shot uh, my mother because they wanted information about where my father was and my brother. Uh, my father and my brother, they were both uh, freedom fighters and they were fighting um, in the mountains in, in Kurdistan against the Iranian regime. And at the time we were, um, we had fleed uh, from Iran, um, from the Kurdish area to Northern Iraq. So we were in a village in Iraq um, and there were war at that time. There were Iranian-Iraqi war also, beside the, the, the war between the Kurds and uh, the Iranian regime and the Iraqi regime. So, um, so the story is that there were soldiers. I don't remember seeing the soldiers. I remember seeing my mother's face. I remember uh, the sounds. I remember um, hiding and um, and then seeing what happened uh, right after, where the whole village suddenly showed up and were surrounded by all these people um, who were looking at us. But um, and I remember, you know, shouting and crying. And nobody, and that's that's so strange to think about that nobody came and and picked me up or uh, comforted me or um, tried somehow to make sure that I wasn't, you know, standing there looking at my mom almost dying and bleeding to death. Um, why? Why so, do you think that is? Why? Why did no one come to your your aid? Um, the shock, I think, I think it's, it's kind of the same phenomena that I experience with the majority of people looking at pictures of what is going on, for example, in Syria, um, uh, of children dying, of, uh, uh, people bleeding. And, and, uh, part of it is that uh, as a human being, you kind of protect yourself by shutting down, um, and you get not because you get immune to it. I think it's it's just a way of protecting yourself, um, and also just not knowing what to do in the situation. Um, but at, but at that situation, I think it's if for my family, it was also about we were refugees in in that village. So the villagers they were Iraqis, they were Iraqi Kurds, and. People, they were really afraid of getting involved or doing anything because um, what would be the consequences for them? Um, would the military come if they actually help us and do something to their family also? So people were really scared to help out. Um, and if it wasn't for the courage of very few people in the village, uh, my mom would have uh, definitely died. There was just few people who came and just took her away and put her in a car and drove her to a hospital in a city, well knowing that that would could have had a, a you know a very um, um, bad consequences for them. They could have ended in jail. Um, they could have been accused of them, uh, who, who the people who had done this, or just the 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 fact that they had helped some refugees from Iran 
when there was war between Iraq and Iran, that was very, very risky. Mm -hmm. So I think it was part of the, you know, um, both the fact that the psychological reaction of um, this is too much, how am I going to handle this? And then um, the uh, the fact that people were really afraid that we'll have um, some consequences for themselves and their own families. Um, so, so for listeners who are not as familiar with the the Kurdish story or the the history of the the uh, Iran Iraq War in the region, could you perhaps just fill in some of the sort of broader political context in which yes. um, your sort of experience, your early years in in the Kurdish region as a refugee. Uh, occurred. So, uh, you know, obviously, I, I think many of my mm. listeners will be aware of the Anfal campaign that Saddam Hussein mounted uh, against the, the Kurdish people. But I, I take it this was, this incident probably occurred a bit before that. Yeah, it was actually right before that. Um, not uh, that long before that, actually, uh, it was a few years before that. Um, so, um, the the Kurds are a minority group living living in Iraq, Iran, Turkey, and Syria, um, and uh, they have fought for their basic rights um, for the past more than a hundred years, basically. Um, and in, in Iran, uh, my parents they were uh, born in Iran. Um, they're both Kurdish, and what they wanted to do is fight for autonomy for the Kurdish people. Um, and uh, there are political groups uh, doing that, not only in Iran, but also in Iraq, in Turkey, and in Syria. Um, and uh, when the Iran, after the revolution, um, uh, and after the king, um, the Iranian um, Islamic regime came to, to govern Iran. Yeah, that was like that, 79, right? Yeah. Yes, yeah. that was uh, 79. It was basically February 79. That was the same day I was born. Uh, the revolution ended. And um, so most of the uh, groups who were part of the revolution, the political groups, they were fighting for democracy. But um, uh, most of them uh, didn't get uh, to be part of the new government. Um, so the Kurds, they didn't get any autonomy. Um, Iran, of course, didn't get the democracy that, uh, we fought for. Um, so the, 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 the fight kind of continued from being, um, demonstration on the streets to, uh, people, uh, starting to go to the mountains and, um, having, um, uh, fighting against the, the government. Like the the, the uh, Islamist government at this point of, of exactly. Iran probably, and, and the Kurds wanted their own sort of autonomy from that government. Exactly. Mm -hmm. So they continued the fight for that. And my father was very active in that process. Um, and uh, my siblings also, uh, my young siblings. And what happened is that uh, my 13 years old sister ended up uh, being in jail, uh, captured because she was part of a demonstration. And she was one of the uh, the first uh, young woman who was captured uh, at the time. And she was actually sentenced to death. Um, but exchanged with a prisoner, um, a, 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 you know, a soldier from uh, from the government um, later on. And then my mother and I were uh, in prison also to pressure my dad to surrender himself um, um, and give information to the government. And when we came out, we had to get out of the, the, the country, um, and not the country, the, the, the city that we are living in, uh, we were living in. And um, at that time, in uh, only uh, probably, I think, a year after or two years after the, the Islamic regime um, were governing Iran, the Iraqi-Iranian war started. Mm -hmm. So a year, eight year of war started between uh, uh, Iraq and Iran. A particularly which, brutal and, and horrific war in which gas was used, and, and it's, it's known as one of like the ugliest and, and deadliest and, and most horrific wars in, in modern history, it should be said. Exactly, exactly. And at the time, we uh, were refugees within our own country, um, it, you know, kind of fleeing from one village to another. Um, it, but what happens is uh, that the 
the the the Iranian people of course start supporting the the government because um when your own government is in a war you support that government mm-hmm. the rally um, around the flag effect right exactly yeah. exactly and um so the uh, opposition groups they got really weak and we had to get out of the country and the only option we had was to go to Iraq um, because that was the only country will take uh, the opposition groups and use them against the Iranian regime in the war, basically. Mm-hmm. And that was the only reason why they did it. Um, and at the same time, when we came to Iraq, um, I have to say that as refugees in Iraq, you didn't get asylum. There was not a process where you could apply for asylum. You were there and... Um, the Iraqi government could decide at any time if the war ended between uh, Iraq and Iran to send you back to Iran. So, uh, and they, they, at that point, they will view you as um, prisoners, Iranian prisoners that would be exchanged to Iran. Um, so uh, we didn't have any rights. We were not able to go to school or um, to go to use the hospitals. Basically, um, you had to be invisible. Um, and, uh, what was even worse was that we were Kurdish and the Iraqi uh, government at that time, uh, was using, um, the Iranian Iraqi war as a cover to get rid of the Kurds, basically. Mm-hmm. So, uh, the, the government were taking one village at a time and, destroying them and killing the people. Um, uh, and it was also at the same time where they use chemical weapon mm-hmm. in part of the Iraqi Kurdistan. And, and, this, and is, this, were, this is, this is the Anfal campaign, right? This, this is the campaign of the Saddam, campaign. Saddam Hussein's genocide against the Kurds. And I should say that I had an extended episode, a uh, conversation about this with, with, uh, an American named Peter Galbraith, who, uh, was an American Senate staffer who helped uncover mm-hmm the evidence of, of this genocide and, and bring it to the world's attention. But uh, here you were as, as a child sort of on, on the receiving end of this. Exactly. Exactly. And, and uh, so we were basically fleeing from one village after another. Um, and I remember clearly, I remember clearly, um, uh, you know, that every time, um, the, the military was, uh, on their way entering the villages, you know, uh, you would be up in the mountains or on the top of, uh, of the roof of the, of the, uh, of the uh, houses, all the kids and grownups, we will just look and we would know what was coming. Um, and many times, you know, people will look at each other and would uh, say, you know, is there any way we can get out of this? And, you know, not everybody were able to do that. Not every, everybody were able to actually get out. Um, and that's, that's why there were so many people who were killed. We were lucky and were privileged that we were able to flee every time and get out um, and, and survive um, the horrific, um, you know, war and, and genocide that was going on at the time. So the situation basically in Iraq was that, uh, there was a, a big war going on between the two governments of Iran and Iraq. So there were you, your villages or the places you were living, it, they were bombed all the time. Uh, but you didn't really know if you were bombed by Iran or you were bombed by the Iraqi regime because you were in the Kurdish area. Um, and, and I think that's one of the reasons why the whole story about who did what, uh, you know, when it comes to my mother, uh, and who are these people who came and did this? Um, why is this so secretive to this day? I think that's kind of part of that because uh, figuring out um, as a child or even as a grown up, who's working for whom and who's part of what uh, government or regime who's coming after you. It was really difficult to understand. What I knew and what everybody knew was, we, you know, the, the, we were Kurdish. And that was the reason we had the wrong nationality. We were in the wrong part of uh, the country. And that's why um, there were people after us and trying to get rid of us. Uh, how did you end up in Denmark? So, um, 
that that took a really long time. Uh, you, the, in, in the talk, you said that you came at the age of sixteen. Yes, yes. So I was basically born in 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 the war, uh, and my life continued like this uh, until um, after the first Gulf War um, in the nineties. Um, around uh, ninety two, I think, um, or ninety three. Um, I don't know if people remember that the, the, the Kurds in northern Iraq, they fleed in, uh, to the mountains. And there was a lot of pictures sent to Western countries uh, about, you know, the, the, the horrific uh, terror of people fleeing because they were afraid of Saddam using chemical weapons against them again. And that was the first time that the international community decided to do something. Um, and they um, decided that there will be no fly zones in northern Iraq. So the Iraqi regime were not able to send flights over northern Iraq. And at the same time, that opened opportunities for the Iraqi Kurdish oppositions who were placed in Iran and Turkey to come back and take over northern Iraq, uh, the Kurdish areas. Um, and there were... UN forces who were actually sent to northern Iraq, and that gave us an opportunity to apply for asylum for the first time. Because what you have to know is I had nine siblings, and um, all of them had to flee um, as unaccompanied refugee children, uh, which means that my pe- my parents would find uh, smugglers and give them some money and say, you know, please take my kids and help them to get out of this country. Uh, and uh, hopefully they will end up somewhere safe. Um, because when you flee um, as a family, it's really difficult. Um, Especially with like nine, nine people. I mean, nine, exactly. Yeah. And, and when you become a teenager, um, as a boy, you don't have many options. Um, if you don't want to be taken by the government, uh, by the military, um, the only option they had was to become freedom fighters. And then my parents knew that for sure they will lose their life. And if you're a girl, you would have the same option, but there was a huge chance also for abduction and sexual violence um, and rape. So, um, it, you know, that's the other aspect of it that we don't talk so much about is being a child and a refugee is tough, but being a child and being a, a girl is enormously difficult because there is so many risks that you have to remember. Uh, and 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 you are you're basically a burden for your whole family because if you have a beautiful um, child girl that you are fleeing with, there is a huge risk that you will be attacked by other people who would want to take your daughter, or um, and there will be an incident of rape or sexual violence, and then your brother and your your father have to defend you uh, or to protect you, and then they would get killed. So the you know there's um, it's it's enormously difficult as a woman and as a as a as a girl to to flee, and that's something that we don't talk enough about. Um, um, so um, yes, my my siblings they had to get out as as soon as they became around fifteen and fourteen. Um, but, um, my sister and I, my little brother were three kids who were, uh, you know, much younger than the other ones. Um, and my mother, she couldn't, you know, go through this horrible, um, journey that you have to go through to get out of Iraq to Turkey, to Greece, and then from there to, um, a, a safe place. Um, so we couldn't we couldn't take that journey. We had to stay in Iraq. We had to wait for another opportunity to show up. And the only opportunity was that one day we were able to apply for asylum through um, UN. So, so you, you applied through the UN Refugee Agency uh, to get resettled as, as refugees. Yes. And, and, yes. And, and, and they sort of assigned you or, or Denmark sort of picked you picked your family. 
Yes, Denmark said yes, while there was actually other countries who said no, because um, the cost of uh, of surgery for my mother would be enormous. Um, and Denmark at the time was one of the few countries who would actually take um, refugees who were uh, where you knew that they wouldn't might not be uh, you know productive uh, um, citizens when they come to your country. Um, this has of course changed now in Denmark because we are now and and that uh, happened um, unfortunately last week uh, that the government decided um, that we are one of the few countries in the world um, uh, or maybe the only one who uh, will not take uh, uh, FN quota refugees anymore. Um, usually we would take in Denmark 500 refugees, but uh, that would not happen um, Wait, Denmark's, uh, longer. D- Denmark is no longer accepting refugees for resettlement? Yes, exactly. Oh my gosh. And, that's, and that, 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 that's news to me. That happened recently? That happened last week. Yes. So this is, this is in the wake also, one should say, of the uh, Trump administration reducing the number of refugees uh, eligible for resettlement to an historic uh, low. Yes, exactly. So, um, in, and, and, and also we have neighbors, we have Germany and we have Sweden who have taken enormous amount of refugees and have taken their responsibility very seriously. But, um, and and we have uh, as a country in Denmark a responsibility to not only for the the you know uh, the humanitarian responsibility but but also to uh, be solid you know solidarity to our neighbors and uh, even that we are not we don't care about anymore so it, it it's um it's a big shock for for many of us who fight for 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 this cause. Um, but we're hoping to keep pushing the government and changing that at some point, but it's not happening right now, um, so, unfortunately. So in, in your talk, you describe or, or state that um, constant fear as a child has lifelong and lasting um, psychological uh, effects on, on individuals. Can, can you um, sort of put your like doctor hat on and, and just like explain to us sort of why that is, what the research is uh, about that, and then also perhaps... Uh, Talk a little bit about, if you're comfortable, the the ways in which that that fear you experienced as a child sort of manifests itself in in your everyday life. Yes. Um, So the new research um, um, talk about toxic stress. It's a it's a new diagnosis. We don't talk so much about when it comes, uh, especially to children, not so much about post-traumatic stress disorder anymore, but about toxic stress. Um, and that is uh, basically, um, you know, to make it very short, uh, what uh, everybody experienced stress at some point in their life. Uh, what uh, the difference is um, that the people who have been exposed to stress over a very long time uh, and it's a very high amount of stress, um, uh, and especially if it started in a very young age, then their brain development is actually affected by it. Because uh, when we're exposed to traumatic experience, to high amount of stress, um, our brain tries to protect us by shutting down to what is dangerous in our environment. But the brain keep working uh, what happens, though, is the rate uh, of uh, the growth of the brain slows down, and that makes us vulnerable to developing anxiety, depression, um, and um, in other um, physical illnesses also. Um, so imagine children for somebody, for example, like me, and we have right now millions of uh, children who grow up and are also born during the war. If you look at the children in Syria, there has been a new report done by um, Save the Children where they looked at the effects of the war of these children and also in in Iraq, um, the children, especially in Mosul. And they have many of the symptoms of uh, toxic stress because what happened is that, um, you know, in, in, in childhood, our brain is basically is kind of like a sponge. It, 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 it is affected by everything in the environment and they, the environment around them. It affects the hormones that we produce and also how the, the brain is developed. Uh, and when the development of your brain is slowed down, 
that will affect how your memory is going to function, how your cognition is going to function, how you're going to be able to regulate your emotion and be socially with other people engaging and communicating. And also uh, the language that you have for communication. And uh, that would be violence because that's what you see all around you. Um, uh, so, uh, that it has, you know, the the children who experience war and trauma and it continues to be in their life for a very long time. Um, can, can I ask, it, how, yeah. how, how do you treat that? Yes. So that what is important to understand is that it doesn't mean that you are doomed for the rest of your life and uh, you will have toxic stress um, in uh, for 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 the rest of your life, the way you treat it is the the most important thing is to be able to stop the stress around the child um, as soon as possible, which means to getting them out of the violent environment and being able to give them uh, the safety and nurturing environment, which is the most difficult thing to do for the refugee children right now because they are in refugee camps or they are in war areas. So they are not able to get the feeling of safety. They are not able to uh, feel or experience uh, that the world uh, around them uh, is, is safe and the danger is not there anymore, because that is what it will take for the you know their nervous system to calm down. That is what it takes for their brain to understand you know it's okay now. You can relax. You don't have to shut down anymore. Um, and and that if if that safety is not there, if that is that basic safety is not there, it's going to be really difficult to help these children. But also uh, the the second thing that that we can, the second best thing that we can do is educating the parents uh, in the refugee camps and um, in also in in the war areas. Uh, about the symptoms of uh, toxic stress, but also uh, about basic things that they can do, um, how to talk to their children, how to make sure that they know that these are normal symptoms and how to be nurturing and caring um, toward their their kids, uh, even though it's really difficult to get the energy and to get the, the you know, the, the possibility to do that and make them feel safe. And and in in your talk, you describe how uh, it was the kindness of of a neighbor that helped provide that kind of safety and that sense of community that helped you sort of overcome in your your early years some of that the 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 symptoms of of um, this kind of stress that you were describing. Um, yes. And and well well, but you also um, mentioned and 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 um, you also mentioned. Uh, in the talk, how even though to this day you still sort of experience some of these symptoms, some of these expressions of of um, the kind of psychological effects that you wear to this day from the trauma that you experienced as a child. Can you, I guess, talk a little bit about how that sort of manifests itself in you and like how you deal with it? Yes. Um, it, you know, when you have never experienced being safe, um you, when you never had that feeling, it's really difficult to regain it again, or it's impossible because you can't regain something that you didn't have. So for me, it meant that I had to learn something new and it was really difficult for me to understand and, and know when I, uh, I was safe or what was that feeling of, fe of being safe. And it has taken me many, many years. It started for me uh, when I came to Denmark. I keep thinking, even when I was a child in, in Iraq, I keep thinking, I just need to get to a country uh, where people will be kind to me and will um, treat me with respect and accept. And that's when I will feel safe and I will, all my, you know, trauma symptoms will disappear. So that's why I end up moving around a lot after I got my Danish passport. Also, I moved to the U S I moved to England, I moved to Canada and, um, and, and came back to Denmark. Um, and it, it's actually just recently that I have found out that, the only place where I feel safe is with my family and very, very close friends. 
Um, and when I'm with them and I, when I feel safe, that's when I calm down. And that's when my trauma symptoms are not so strong. Um, so, uh, but um, it's something that will be with me, um, f- I think, for the rest of my life. In, in times where I'm really stressed, in times where there is transition in my life, uh, when big things happen, even good things, um, that is when I start having nightmares. I will have a nightmares about what happened to my mother or a horrible thing that happened in Iraq. Um, in, I will wake up in the morning, many mornings, where I feel exhausted. So, uh, you know, it feels like somebody has actually beating me up and I have pain and ache everywhere. Um, I have, you know, chronic inflammatory, um, I don't know what he called it, um, in, in my muscles, basically, um, as a result of all the tensions that I have had in my whole life, um, I still get a lot of infections. Um, so it makes my daily life really difficult, but also when it comes to having close and intimate relationships, um, um, that that's also um, being able to trust other people to get so close to you. That is something that I also still really struggle with. Mm. Um, and I think that the, the, the biggest uh, challenge for somebody who have experienced what I have experienced is uh, for a child of war is deciding one day to have a family on your own. And especially when I'm a psychologist myself, and I know uh, so much about secondary traumatization, which means that a lot of parents are actually uh, um, give some of their symptoms to their children without being aware of that. So, you know, post-traumatic stress disorder is not something that stays with the parents. It's actually something that could be transferred to the children. Um, And that is something that I have a big fear of. Um, and, and something that follows me a, a lot, um, and, and prevents me also from making the final decision of whether I do want to have children or not. Um, but at the same time, it gives me, um, have had these experiences is giving me a purpose in life and giving me uh, the second chance that not a lot of people unfortunately get. So I know, I know also I'm very privileged and I know that every day is a gift Um, And I know that I have uh, a responsibility to fight and be the voice of all the children who who don't have the same opportunities that I have. Um, So um, I think my trauma will be my best friend and my worst enemy uh, for the rest of my life. Um, And that is the consequences of being born and growing up uh, in war. Uh, Well, well, Mojda, thank you so much for your time. This This was fascinating. Thank you. Thank you, Mark. Uh, is there anything else I can stop right here? Is there anything else you'd want to add, want to, to get in? Well, I, I really want to um, emphasize what I said in my talk. And um, that is, I really hope that people will understand that everybody can make a, a difference and everybody can do something to help refugees. Um, and it starts with you. It starts with um, doing the small gestures. Um, I am. I have no doubt in my mind that when I was standing there as a child, looking at my mother, mother bleeding, and had the whole village around me, surrounded by people, and if just one of them had taken me up as a child and hold me and told me everything would have been okay. Um, And I think that would have made a huge difference in my life today when it comes to how I trust people and what I think of generally of of the kindness of human beings. Uh, And it would have made my life much more um, easier, I think, emotionally. So it's the small gestures that makes a difference. And we really have to remember that, that we all have a responsibility and a power to make a difference. Uh, well, Mojda, thank you so much. Thank you, Mark. 
All right. Big thank you to Mojda. Thank you all for listening. That was great. That was, that was a really great, fantastic episode. I love the ability to highlight my fellow Humanity in Action senior fellows who have both such interesting and enlightening stories to tell and are just doing some great work in the world. If you want to learn more about Humanity in Action, go to humanityinaction.org or just email me. I'm, I'm happy to send you in the right direction. Please leave a review on iTunes for this podcast. It is a great way for you to help me grow the audience of this show. Basically, most people in the world get their podcasts through iTunes, most but but not all. And Apple, uh, which manages and runs iTunes, of course, gives preference in search rankings to those podcasts that have more reviews and and more stars. So if you have just a moment to write a quick review of how much you appreciate this show, I would so appreciate it. It helps make this a sustainable enterprise. The more people that listen, the easier it is to attract advertisers and supporters and sponsors. So you'll be helping, helping me out a lot. All right. We'll see you soon. Bye. The views and opinions expressed in the podcast are those of the speakers and do not necessarily reflect the policies or positions of Humanity in Action.